Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Well, we're going to jump into this morning's time of just unpacking Scripture. you excited to get into the Scriptures? Yeah, yeah that was really low. Um, is Revelation like, like getting heavier and heavier for you every week? Some people are like, I just saw one person there. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it's, it, it is one of those texts. I, I want to tell you right off the start, as we're in the middle of a series like this, please send me or our church a note of questions or ideas or um, things that come up that you just, you know, you we're reading this and you're wondering, uh, because it is one very unique, complex text. And, uh, but we wanted to engage it because so many people have questions around it. Uh, so many of us wonder, how do we read something like this in the scriptures and apply it? So many of us wonder when we're talking to friends because people see stuff on Facebook and the internet on references to things in Revelation with no context, with no story behind it. And so we want to be mindful of that. So if there's questions around it, please, please, it's, it would be so helpful as we engage this uh, together. So we just want to start that. So I'm going to start off with just a little story to help us think about what we're talking about in Revelation today. It's chapters 12 to 14. When I was dating my wife, all right, maybe this is on, Enzo. Could you take this monitor off? I think that's on and it's feeding for me. When I was dating my wife, and I say dating her, I say quasi-dating her, I say um, somewhat dating her because I led her on a roller coaster ride uh, as, uh, as I was dating her at that time. And here I had in front of me this wonderful person, my wife is sitting over there, uh, beautiful inside and out, and yet in that stage of my life, there was like other ideas, paths of like, what am I going to do with my life? Is my, is my life going to take me here? Even like using God in that way, like, Lord, are you leading me to do something different? And it led me to sometimes wonder, second guess, check like, oh, is, you know, is this the path I'm on? Does, is, is Franca the one who's going to be with me on this path? And I remember my brother one day kind of like shaking me up and saying, Dave, do you see what's right in front of you? And uh, thankfully I did, <laughs> and my wife will tell you the, the stories around that. But isn't it incredible how there's something so good and wonderful that is available in, to you in your life that you find that is just is, is part of how God wants to work in you and uh, how, you, how God wants to use you to be a blessing to another person or to others around you, and sometimes you can miss it because there's other things that maybe are in the way as a way of saying, oh, this path or that path. And it's incredible how in our life something can be so good and yet we can miss it or reject it. And that's a little bit of how the kingdom of God works too. Here's Jesus who comes in and says, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's like, of course we want the kingdom of heaven. But he says, repent and believe. Repent, in other words, like, you're not going the way of the kingdom. Turn around and follow it and see what it is and believe in it and move into this life that God has for you. Today we're going to be reading Revelation 12, 13 and 14. Not all of it, but bits of it. And John, in this part of this letter, this apocalyptic letter, gives us another part of the vision that he receives to help us see that humanity and Christians, not just not just non-Christians, humanity and Christians can sometimes miss the life that God offers them because of an opposing force that's getting in the way. And the vision alludes to the Satan, the devil, the evil one. So let's, let's read, uh, read this. I actually got to print it out today because I'm going to try and read a whole bunch of little par- portions of it. We're going to start off with six verses in, verse, in chapter 12. 
So here's another part of this vision that John has that he's relaying to us, the first century church and the church over the centuries. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept through a third, down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who would rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. This is just the beginning of these three chapters um, together. And these verses are a springboard into this vision that John has that really captures for us the tension between God's kingdom and worldly kingdoms. God's kingdom and then worldly kingdoms that are influenced by Satan. And this section introduces us to some really unique characters. I mean, I'm going to try and unpack these kind of like chapters in a story and character development and then help us kind of come to this core message that we can get from 12, 13, and 14. And the first character we meet is this pregnant woman. This woman who's going to bear a child, who's going to have a child, a son. Now, we read about who this son will be. He will be one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. In the Psalms, Psalms 23, we get a sense that when we are under God's management and care, we say, oh God, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's a way that alludes to God's Son in this text, Jesus, that is a very interesting vantage point for the Christmas story, but also helps us understand that Jesus' rule will bring hope and life in a different way than the world wants to offer. We're introduced to this dragon who wants to devour the child, but God rescues the child almost in the last minute, and this woman flees to the wilderness for 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. We've heard this number before, right? That three and a half versus seven means it's incomplete versus complete. A complete season or a complete period of time in, would, would be used to say seven years, but an incomplete period of time would be three and a half years. So again, it describes the season between seasons. And as we're reading this, even in this introductory part, it's this retelling of the gospel story again, Christmas and Easter, the birth of Christ, but also the death and resurrection of Christ. This son is born, and in a way, this son eventually will be led to die. Satan wants to destroy God's plan. He thinks he wins at the death of Jesus, but Jesus resurrects from the grave. Jesus, the son, the baby, is rescued, is resurrected But the woman is sent into the wilderness for three and a half years, an incomplete amount of time. Like Egypt is in the wilderness waiting for the promised land, the church, the woman, its children, is in the wilderness waiting for new creation, all in between past and future resurrection. And this makes the dragon furious. This makes 
the evil one furious. Verse 7 says this, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth. And we get this sense here that we get this picture of what we have maybe seen in the Bible elsewhere, in Isaiah and also from the words of Jesus, of this star falling down to earth, the Satan falling down to earth. But here we, get, we know why that happened, because Satan was defeated. This dragon is defeated, first in heaven by Michael and his angels, secondly by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Later it says this in verse 11, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. The ultimate plans of this dragon will, will be defeated by the blood of the Lamb, by the testimony of God's church. But in the meantime, in between the seasons, he is so mad and he is so furious that he goes on a rampage. Verse 12, the second half says, Woe to the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. It's limited. It's not forever. It's temporary. It's not ultimate. He has a limited opportunity. And he couldn't get the child, so he goes for the woman. Verse 13, So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, three and a half years. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away in the flood. But the earth came to help the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon um, and the dragon had poured from his mouth. So the woman is saved. The woman's rescued, even though the dragon aims to get her. But then the dragon moves on to the children. Verse 17, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So it's like the war is on against God's people. The war is on against the church. And Satan is looking for a way to sabotage God's plan, to sabotage God's people. Verse 18 is, is interesting. It's like it's, he's just like the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore. This image like this dragon is kind of sitting on the seashore and like, hmm, what am I going to do next? And verse 13 or chapter 13, we get his strategy. And he solicits help from two beasts, two more characters we see in this vision from John. Beast number one comes from the sea. This is what John says. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea and having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority." They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. This is verse 4. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? It's as though the dragon, the Satan, now gives power to this one beast to have this earthly rule, to execute his strategy, 
Ten horns in apocalyptic literature often refers to political or government or worldly powers. And this patched up animal, a bear, a leopard, a lion, it's like patched up leaders or kingdoms or nations. Again, what we, all, what we see here is there's something always going on behind the surface. It's not always literal, but it's symbolizing the kingdoms of the world. But there's also a parody here. There's also a, something like it's not this, but it's this. Think about this. God gives authority to Jesus to rule ultimately. Satan gives authority to earthly leaders to rule temporarily. Beast number two comes out of the earth. Here's this other character in verse 11 and 12. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth, and it had two horns like the lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. This almost like mimics Jesus, the lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It's like, look, 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 you can trust me but speaks like a dragon in deception and has all the authority on behalf of the first beast. This is, again, like a parody, kind of like Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is here on earth. He says, my advocate will come. He will speak on my behalf. He'll teach you about me. He'll lead you into truth. Jesus sends the Spirit. The Spirit points back to Jesus or speaks on his behalf. And it's like the second beast now given authority to speak on behalf of the beast and the dragon wants to turn people to the dragon. And you look at these parodies going on and you're like, oh, wait a second. Is it possible that Satan is just mimicking what God does? The dragon, the first beast, the second beast, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? It's like an unholy trinity is taking place in this vision. And ultimately, Satan wants to disrupt and damage and dishonor God's mission and purposes. He's fighting back. He's sabotaging God's redemptive mission, and he's attempting to make God's people, his church, ultimately fail and reject God. It's almost like a reverse repentance, right? The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. Turn towards God. Satan is doing like a reverse repentance. Turn away from the lamb and worship the dragon, and his strategy is, is using these two beasts. And it's, it's, we can kind of call, give them two other names, fear and deception. We can know them as these two things, as might and manipulation or as power and propaganda. Think of the first beast. Verse 7 says that he will make war on the saints and conquer them. He doesn't realize that in conquering the saints as faithful witnesses, that will at times suffer for Christ will actually turn the whole, his whole plan on its head. But that's his fear tactic. The seven churches reading this letter lived under Rome's war machine. They lived under Rome's violent force. Rome was saying, peace, peace, Pax Romana, but Rome was trying to make peace through violent force, coercion. Rome eliminated any political threat that was in its way, and Christians were a threat because Christians called Jesus Lord, not Caesar. And so they knew, these first churches reading this letter knew what it meant to live under war, Rome's war machine. And Satan would use Rome to scare them into disobedience of Jesus. But not just scare them into disobedience of Jesus, the goal would be that they would actually turn against Christ and adopt the ways of the empire. What would be better than disobeying God in the eyes of Satan? it would be those same people adopting the violent and greedy ways of the empire. If someone wanted to turn my son against me, that would be very hurtful. 
But if, but if that would turn into betrayal and treason, that would, treason, that would like almost destroy us, separate us. Disobedience is one thing. Betrayal and treason is another. And that's the ultimate plan of this first beast, Satan's plan with the first beast to influence leaders and nations to fear the church into disobedience and betrayal. And the first church knew what this felt like under Rome's empire. And some churches in pockets of history know what that feels like under various empires. But the second beast is more like deception, not fear. The second beast is considered a false prophet. The second beast uses the words and ideologies and, and, uh, and isms of our world to distract the church and to distract the world. Ultimately, to manipulate the world to worship who? Not God, but the dragon, the Satan. It usually comes like this. If we could only have this, then we would have life. If we could only have this, then we would have life. If we could only have this, then we could have life. And it's all an alternate to what God wants to give us in His kingdom. And in our world, we can call them individualism, we can call them consumerism, we can call them materialism, we can call it elitism, we can call it greed, we can call it so many, we can call it economic exploitation, whatever we want to call it. The deception is if you could have this, you don't need this. But this is temporary. God's kingdom is ultimate. And the beast, if you look at verse 13, 14, 15, it uses signs and miracles and sensations all to attract and kind of manipulate. Eugene Peterson sums up both beasts in this way. He says, politics we know uses the exercise of power, either through manipulation of force, like military, or the manipulation of words, like propaganda. It's fear and deception. And the beast deceives the way he wants to deceive is he, he loves to leverage our desires, our fears, our wants, our needs to work through worldly systems that, might become, that we might become loyal to and allegiant to and faithful to because loyalty equals trust and loyalty equals worship. Loyalty equals allegiance. And when someone becomes allegiant to the world systems around us, we become marked by their ways. We become marked by their ideas. We become marked with their seal of approval or their framework. Now, I'm going to share like an example here. And don't worry if you have some of these products on you right now. But like, let's say, let's say we buy an Apple product, right? So you bought your laptop and then you're like, I'm going to buy my iPad and then I'm going to buy my, my phone then I'm going to buy my watch, and then I'm going to subscribe to iTunes, and I'm going to make sure I have Apple TV, and if I have iCloud. So when you buy your first Apple product, do you think the goal is that one product? No, the goal is like, would you join our system <laughs> so you can forever be indebted and dependent on all of our products and systems? Because once you're on iTunes, you're not going to go to Spotify. Once you're on Apple TV, well... Yeah, maybe you'll use other streaming services. But once you got one laptop, right? And so that's kind of what that happens. Amazon does this in really interesting ways, right? Oh, yeah, you need like, I don't know, you need a razor or you need doggy bags. But if you subscribe, we'll get you 5% off a month. We'll get it free, delivered for free every four months at your house. You never have to leave your house. You can just depend on us, on Amazon. Countries do this. We're the best country in the whole wide world. Therefore, whatever we do inside our country or to those outside our country is good because your life will be better for it. 
and then we buy into the system. Now, don't get me wrong, using a product or living in a country isn't evil in and of itself and isn't saying, I'm worshiping the beast. But when these things become our life support, our overarching framework, our I can't live without it type of thing, or creates a polarization between us and them and me and the other person and all that, all of a sudden we have fallen prey to this, this strategy where be, the beast or empires, whether it's corporate or government, aim to get us to buy into their loyalty program. Again, don't go home like, crash, like, like breaking your Apple Watch. That's not what I'm telling you to do. But it's to really understand. And here's the thing. This is what Rome was all about. Rome was all about that. Rome wanted to snuff out any other, any competition. Look at verse 16 to, to 18 in chapter 13. This is speaking about the beast. Um, I'll just back up a verse. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, here's verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the, or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let anyone who under, with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. For some of you are like, finally we got to this number. What does this number mean? I see it all over the internet. Um, this is what Rome was all about. Rome was all about capitalizing that everybody would find life and purpose and peace and hope through them and nothing else, including the gospel. When John writes these words, he is identifying Rome, but he's very smart. He, he's saying, if you inherit this mark, and not necessarily a literal mark, but if you inherit the mark of the systems that want to lead you and control you and have you dependent on them, when you inherit this mark, you begin to function in the ways of the beast. You begin to live in dependence to the ways of the beast. You become very comfortable and at home with the systems and the ways and the vision and the values of the beast. And even us who live in, I think, one of the best countries in the world, Canada, and I love our country and I respect our country, there's, and the systems and vision and values. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes we get so in love with our country that we completely forget as kingdom citizens of, God, as citizens of God's kingdom to stop and say, is there anything here that is not of the Lord? Is there anything that's happening here that is not that doesn't reflect God's kingdom. And so this mark, regardless of, of how, what it looks like or what it can be like or what it means, is ultimately loyalty, is ultimately lifestyle. And the first Christians reading this, especially if they had a Jewish background, would have recognized this from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses spoke to Israel, and he gave them what's called the Shema, the most concise idea of what it meant to be God's people. And he said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This was such a significant, um, uh, you know, phrase that Jesus incorporates it into one of two things that reflect what it means when we fulfill the law and the prophets. 
And what would happen in that time frame, as, as Moses goes on to say, or Deuteronomy goes on to write, that we should write this on the door, doorposts of our house, and we should talk about it at dinner. We should even put it on our forehead or our hands. Why? And this was something that the Jews did. There was a little, they would take the Shema, that little phrase from Deuteronomy 6. They would write it in a little scroll and roll it up. No, it wasn't a joint. It was literally like they would roll it up, and then they would hang it from, its fore, from their forehead or hang it from its from their wrist. Why would they do that? Because they were saying, this is the way I'm called to live. This is the way I'm called to live. So somebody's walking down the street, and that little scroll ringing from the side of your head, you're like, oh yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're doing work, you're writing something, you're with your family, you're preparing dinner, and that little scroll hanging from your wrist is like, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some New Testament scholars believe that Jesus incorporated this as part of his creed. Love the Lord your God with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When this would happen from their foreheads or their arms, they were saying, This is my system, this is my framework, this is my loyalty, this is my way of life, and I will listen for God's voice, the God of my shepherd, the God of my king. But the beast. When Satan is working his way into politics and culture and economics, is attempting to deceive people to worship him instead of God. And so that mark, whether it's a literal mark or a figurative mark, is basically saying, if you are going that way, you're saying, this is my lifestyle. Then we have been deceived to live this way, follow this way, to worship this way, to depend on this way. Because worship is ultimately living in such a way that you are marked by the systems and the influences of the beast's power and the beast's power at work in those systems. So many over history have fallen prey to living as though they have a mark on their forehead or a mark on their hand, just different than living according to the Shema of Israel. They're living to a different mark, to a different lifestyle, to a different set of values. And John paints this picture that requires very careful discernment and wisdom for the seven churches in the Roman Empire. Because remember, they were a blip. They were a little spot in the Roman Empire. So do you think John, in apocalyptic writing, is going to say, everybody stay clear of Rome. Everybody stay clear of Nero. Everybody. He would never write Caesar's name in that book. He would never write Nero's name in that book. So he writes it in code, verse 18. This calls for wisdom, right? Thinking. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person, and its number is 666. And if you take that name, Nero Caesar in the Greek, and you transliterate it in the Hebrew, and you attach the numeric values of the Hebrew letters, you come up with this, and it's on the screen. And the first letter is Nun, then Resh, then Vav, then Nun, then Kaf, Samek, and Resh. And if you calculate those numbers, if you're quick enough in your mind, it does equal 666. The number is not 666. The number is 666 because it's the numeric combination or addition of those numbers. And so when John writes this, he's, he's let, hey, think about this, be wise about this, understand this. And as he's writing to a Greek audience who would, who would figure this out, they would figure, oh my gosh, John is speaking about Nero, Caesar, the emperor of the empire. 
he or the system or the government or, the, or Rome itself is trying to deceive us to live their ways when the gospel is calling them to live in the ways of the kingdom. And scholars believe that this was the reference because in other manuscripts, when all they would do is remove an N, if you just kind of put it back up there, if they would just remove the fourth word, the none there, 50, it would equal 616. And in other manuscripts that were written just later on, that, the number wasn't 666, the number was 616. But that culture, that manuscript still would have given an indication to its readers that they were speaking about Nero. See, every empire fights to sustain itself and will use anything that's necessary to suck us in to follow and buy and consume in order to survive. Here's a subtle way I remember seeing this after 9-11. And, uh, and, and don't worry, this is not some conspiracy theory. But George W. Bush, after 9-11, what was the thing he told the American people after this happened, the day later? Do you guys remember? What was the kind of imperative? Go shopping. Hey, every, hey, America, over 3,000 people died yesterday in the World Trade Centers. A bunch of people slammed into these buildings. This is horrible for our country. Go to the mall. Isn't that interesting? Now, I, in some ways, he, I'm sure as a leader, he was trying to distill fear, how people move on, how people not go into panic. But ultimately, he was saying, sustain America. Go shop. Sustain America. Systemic debt is a form of this. Extreme militarism is a form of this. War, violence is a form of this. Coercive politics is a form of this. Here's the thing. When we're marked by the beast, we become a parody of the, of the gospel. Because 666 is not 777. Seven is the complete number. 666 is a parody when we are marked by the ways of the beast, we become a parody of the, of the gospel, a false gospel. And here's my question to you and me. How are we tempted to do this? Don't just think of the future. How are we tempted to do this today? How are we tempted to prove our faith through appearance and possessions and religiosity? How are we tempted to bow to, to the God of success, the God of politics, the God of power, the God of war? How are we tempted to disguise these things as religious and faithful and positive? I was, we were, my wife and I were with some friends the other day, and they were telling us about a preacher they went to hear here in Montreal a couple of years back, and he's frequented our city a few times, and they were sitting in the, she was sitting in the audience, and the preacher began to preach, and she said, he was a good communicator, man. He, he captivated the crowd. He spoke with authority. And people were listening. And then at one point, he, he whips open his suit jacket. And he shows everybody the brand on his suit. And he shows them the Gucci belt he's wearing and the Prada shoes that he has on. And he says, this is what happens when God blesses you. This is what happens when, when, when God is on your side. This is a sign of faith. This is a sign of revival. And I'm like... Have you seen the house of Gucci? I was just thinking about that. Like, like, anyways, he might as well have had 666 written on his forehead or hanging from his hand. Because the sign of the beast is when we've become deceived into thinking that the system we're following is godly, but instead it's actually beastly. 
I put that on the screen for us to remember. The sign of the beast at work in us is when we've been deceived into thinking that the systems we're following are godly when they're actually beastly. And this is why John so wants these churches and us to be woken up to just stop and say, wait a second, don't be deceived. So let me ask you the question, where have you feared, been feared into disobedience? Where have you been deceived into false worship? Where have you been feared into disobeying God? Where have you been deceived into worshiping the systems of our world and not God? I'm going to ask the team to come up as we close with communion today because I want us, as we take the bread and the wine today, to reflect on this question because when we take the bread and the wine today, we are ultimately saying Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our King. This world is, is good and God has created it and He's going to make all things new one day, but there is systems in our world influenced and empowered by Satan to fear us into disobedience and to deceive us into false worship. And I pray that as we take communion in a few moments that we would think about this and what it means to live tomorrow, Monday morning, as we head into work and head into our, in our relationships and in our neighborhoods. And here's my invitation to you as we do this. How can you, in your daily reflection with the Lord, identify the systems influenced by Satan? Don't get paranoid. I'm not telling you to never buy an Apple product or never shop at Amazon. That's not what I'm saying. However, however, be discerning to identify the systems influenced by Satan and because this is what Revelation is meant to do to us and for us, to wake us up so we can ask, is this system a reflection of God's kingdom or a beastly kingdom? Is, are, are the activities I'm involved in or the dependence on this or that or this product or that, is this path or is this framework, is this mindset, is this, does this reflect God's kingdom or a beastly kingdom? And then to invite you and me to discern and to distinguish because we need discernment. John's word there, wisdom, was so important for us to read. He told them, be, be wise. You need wisdom. And he left this code for them to discern that it was Nero Caesar. And he's calling us to be discerning of the empires in our world. And not just the empires that are off the shores of North America, the empires that are on the shores of North America. Because they're all empires. And they all want something from us. And it doesn't mean that you're called to live in a bubble or to, um, you know, repel the government or bring down the government. Eugene Peterson says this really well. He says, the early church was able to maintain a respect for government while resisting the elements that attempted to be substitutes for God. The early church was able to do that somehow, respect the government while resisting the elements that attempted to be substitutes for God. You and I are called to respect, honor, live within, like Jeremiah 29, 7 goes, live, be for the good of the city. All these things, we're called to do this. At the same time, we're called to resist the elements that are calling us to substitute these things for God. We have to do both at the same time. And then finally, after we identify this and discern and distinguish, we're called right out of this text to resist and endure, to resist and endure. Here's the two last repeated lines in chapter 13 and 14. 
John says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Chapter 13. Chapter 14, he says it again. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. So it's not enough for us to just recognize the systems, but it's important that we understand what it means to resist and then endure faithfully as we follow who? We follow the Lamb, not the, not the dragon. We listen to the voice of the Spirit, not the voice of the beast. And here's what I want to just tell you at the end. You can do this. You are equipped to do this. You are equipped to discern. You're equipped to distinguish. You're empowered to be faithful and to endure. Here, I, I, please don't forget this. Even in this vision of the unholy trinity, Jesus still reigns. Every song this morning, I was, just loved our worship time this morning, every song reminded us that Jesus reigns. Jesus still reigns, and ultimately His politics will end all politics because His new creation is coming. Chapter 14, verse 14, I just got to read this. Then I looked, John said, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. That image from Daniel, from the prophets, from Jesus Himself, and in Revelation is this image of a ruler who will rule and reign, the one who sits on the clouds. And don't forget this. In the middle of this crazy vision, right? Michael, the angel, stops the dragon in the heavenly realms. The dragon never defeats the woman or the child. The dragon, the beast can be resisted with discernment and decisiveness. And the beast is exposed as a parody of God's power, but is never given ultimate power. You, we must remember this. It's right in the, in, the, in the vision. We must never forget this as we come to a close to ask the band to start, as we just move into this moment of communion. I want to pray and then move into this. So let's pray right now. Holy Spirit, we need um, your power. We need your, the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need your discerning spirit in us. We need your wisdom to be faithful witnesses, to be children of God in a world that at times has been co-opted by an unholy trinity. Lord, give us uh, also the wisdom and the grace, the ability of Jesus to hold truth and grace in both hands, to be people who learn how to respect our world and live in our world and love our world and function in our world and work in our world and bless our cities in its prosperity, but also especially that we would have the wisdom to resist the elements in these systems that are not of you in these corrupted ways that are not of you. And whether it's a corporation, whether it's extreme militarism or war or violence, whether it's hunger for power or greed, whatever it might be, whether it's what is cut right through our own hearts and lives when we are tempted to win using the ways of the world instead of the ways of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, give us wisdom. But Lord, we also thank you that we are identified with you. We can identify with Jesus. He, he gives us our identity. He fuels our identity. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, just like John was calling this first century church 
to see anything around them that would either fear them into disobedience or deceive them into false worship. Lord, may we be so rooted in the love of our God and Father in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of your kingdom, in the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, to be discerning people in our world, be faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.